Dear God, thank you for each person here. Lord, we are grateful that you are our protector, that you are our leader. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have involved us in your kingdom work, that we get to help advance the kingdom. But Lord, we know that there is opposition to that, that there is another kingdom, and that we have an enemy, that there is a villain in this life. And I just pray that you would uh, guide us, help us to be people of diligence and holiness and power in your spirit. Lord, this is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, If that helps you, I encourage you to pull that out if that's helpful to your learning style. You know, we... We raised five children and some foster children as well in our home, and four of our children were little boys, and our little boys love to play war or battles. Matter of fact, we have some Nerf battle axes that I think are in a shed somewhere, and they would just go to town clobbering each other with those battle axes. That was just fun. And I think the reality that's kind of put in boys and men, because we are headed into uh, spiritual warfare in this life, I think it is something that we would be wise to remember. It would be very foolish to be a soldier and to go in a war zone and act like it's peacetime. And yet many, many Christians walk through life acting like there is no spiritual war, but there is. We get glimpses of it in the Bible. We see, you know, Daniel praying and God sends an angel to send the answer and it's held up in a, that angel is held up in a battle and can't come for some time. We see the curtain pulled back at the beginning of the book of Job where Satan goes to God the Father and says, hey, I want to, you know, they're talking about Job and he wants to attack Job. And everything that flows out of that book in the rest of that story uh, comes from not Job, you know, sowing and reaping, not just because he lives in a fallen world, but because of deep uh, spiritual attack from Satan himself. And so Job loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses his health. And so we need to understand that when we sign up and we say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I accept him as my Lord and Savior, we take on an enemy as well. And I think many of us forget that. I think we, are, uh, we t- sometimes leave that out. Different branches of the American church have different things that we emphasize. There's lots in Scripture. And so I don't think anybody absolutely emphasizes everything at the appropriate level. We do our best. But I think a lot of the American church has a tendency to downplay or ignore the spiritual warfare side of life. It's like if we had a puzzle and there's 300 pieces in the puzzle and we're only going to try to put the puzzle together and we're only going to use 200 pieces. I mean, there's a side of life that if you pull the curtain back, we need to understand that we are in a spiritual war. We see glimpses of it. I think of the Old Testament story of the great exodus where the Jewish people are freed from slavery. When Moses goes, he does different plagues. He does different signs as, you know, miraculous credentials. And for the first few, the Egyptian magicians are able to do what he does, at least to a certain level. Now, some read that passage and see that as David Copperfield, you know, uh, magician sleight of hand stuff, but I read it, and I think most theologians read that as actual satanic power, 
and it's trying to mimic and match what God does. Now, it can't, and those Egyptian magicians had to step back at one point. It was specifically the plague of the gnats, and they said, we can't do that. That is the finger of God. But understand that we live and operate in a world that is at war. And so we would be wise to be aware of this, to be, have some diligence about us. We see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, and this pictures Satan as a dragon, so a ferocious beast is kind of the image and symbol. And notice how he feels about the people of God. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and so that's, that's the people, uh, the Jewish people bringing forth the church, um, some specifically see Mary in that, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So that is the church, and so there is a war against the church. We see the end of the battle in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, verse 24 and 25, where it says, then the end will come, and when he, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and so we see that we kind of live in an in-between stage right now it's kind of like in world war ii in world war ii there was d-day d-day was when the allies so the united states and and um, england and the others when they landed in france and they broke the chokehold that Nazi Germany had on Europe. And so D-Day was this incredible victory. And when you looked at D-Day, you saw that, hey, it's the beginning of the end for the Axis powers. But there were still lots of bloody battles. There was still a lot of the war to go. And then there's finally in Europe, VE Day, Victory Europe. And so there's this in-between where you can tell who has won the, the war but there's still all this mop-up, bloody battles, and then there's the end. So D-Day was the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Satan has been defeated. He operates as a defeated enemy, but he's still powerful. There are still battles. And then finally, Christ will return one day, and it will all be settled. And that's V-E-D. That's, that's the, the victory over the entire world day. And so we live in between. We live in a time of war. Now, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory ultimately, because Christ has won the victory, and it will all be finished, and he will win, and we're on his side. But we find ourselves in this place of warfare. Pretty famous passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. I want to read this to you, and there's no way I can unpack all of this. I'll just pull out a few ideas as we go through this, but this will be our primary text this morning. It says this, this is Paul writing, the apostle, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. Now, when someone wants to emphasize something, whether it's a parent or a teacher, they tend to repeat. And so watch for that word stand. We see this multiple times. Against the devil's schemes. So what are we to stand against? The devil's schemes, his plans. He wants ruin for your life. He wants both spiritual and physical death for you and for I. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we don't, we don't see everything that we're against. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, then verse 14, stand firm then. Do you you think he wants us to stand? I I think he does. Um, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So to defeat the enemy, we must stand and stand against the plans, schemes, and tactics of our enemy, Satan or Lucifer or the devil, whichever title you want to use or name you want to use. Now, what are his schemes? Well, you look at our, I'm not going to read it all again, but Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, notice that it mentions the devil's schemes. Notice that our struggle is not with flesh and blood. We tend to think of other people being our enemies. They are not ultimately our enemies. As a matter of fact, we're called to love other people, even those that would classify themselves as our enemies. Our struggle is against principalities, powers, fallen angels, all of that. So, We're to be people who need to understand the tactics and schemes of the enemy. Now, what he does is, one of those is deception. And it's really important that we get this. Um, He he wants to deceive us. He wants to uh, keep us from the truth. Now, it is crucial Uh, that he wants to do this, that we understand that he wants to do this by, you know, he tempts us to lots of different things. And this is a temptation to believe lies. But there's always a way out of this. Um, When we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we see that there is hope when we face temptation. Maybe you have a temptation that maybe it's even the level of addiction. It just feels absolutely overwhelming But understand, there is always hope in the midst of that temptation. He does not leave us alone. Uh, He does not leave us powerless. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, I appreciate this. Uh, It is... These temptations are pretty common. They tend to be in certain categories. But know that your enemy knows you pretty well. Satan and other fallen angels have been around for a long time. And so the reality is, I think they study us, so to speak. I think that they look at your family tree. Uh, One exercise you might find valuable is what's called a geneogram. And you sit down, you write down your parents, you write down your siblings, you write down your aunts and uncles, your cousins, your your grandparents, your great-grandparents if you know them. And you look at this group of people, this community, this family from which you have come, from which your primary early values were laid, and you look at them and you ask questions like, um, what... 
are some sins that, if there are any, that stand out that dominate this family. I mean, every family is sinful. Is it, you know, it might be a, a real struggle with addiction in a certain area. It might be pride. It might be greed. And so I think there's value in looking at your family and say, what can I learn from this? What have I picked up? What are the values that have soaked into me? Because when you're a little child, it's all getting baked in, whatever that family values. And so understand that, that Satan's looking at you, and he's looking at me, and he's going, well, hey, this worked with Grandpa. Let's try it on him. And just as a trapper here in Alaska, you know, when they're trying to get, and I'm not a trapper, so just clarify. So if the person who told me this information is messing with me, I'll look really silly. But here we go. Um, a trapper in Alaska, if they want a martin, they will put like a feather, and then they, you know, that distracts, I guess, the martin, and they step into the trap. Uh, if they want to catch a beaver, it's not about putting something there as bait. It's about just putting it in the right place, you know, where they're going into their home. Um, if you're wanting to catch a wolf, uh, you want to use beaver meat or something like that that will attract them and, and trap them. And so understand that we have an enemy who looks at us, looks at our family, has a long history. He's got a file on you. And so there are moments where you're like, man, it feels like he's got my number. And he has been thoughtful. He's an intelligent trapper. And so we need to see this. We need to be aware. One of his big things is deception. We see it all the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we have Satan appearing as a serpent. In Scripture, he's pictured as a dragon, a serpent, a lion. All of this, they're dangerous animals. They're ferocious. These are kind of the images we have of this fallen angel. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see this first deception. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, so notice he lies, because God didn't say that. So she corrects him. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, God didn't say you must not touch it, although you know, probably not a bad thing to stay away from it. Um, you, and then he says, notice what he says. So God tells him you'll die, and he says, you will certainly not die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So he contradicts what God said. He takes what God says and twists it. And he says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The reality is when they did participate in disobedience, when they did grab this fruit, whatever it was, in the garden, they experienced at that moment spiritual death. They are separated from God. Their relationship with God is broken. It also brought into creation for mankind physical death. And so eventually, not at that moment, but eventually. And so we see God told them the truth. Satan lied to them. He deceived them and pulled, this in, uh, pulled them into this now broken relationship with God, broken creation itself. We're told in Scripture that creation groans. And so we see deception is one of his primary methods. 
Jesus talks about this when he talks about Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says this. Notice the repetition as we go through this. You belong to your father, the devil. So he's rebuking some folks, saying, hey, you're children of the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Once again, I think Jesus wants us to get that Satan and those who follow Satan are full of deceit, full of lies. This is one of the major tactics that happens. It's probably been a year ago now, I'm not sure, and this is why we have to be diligent people in our thinking. Uh, we have to you know, be discerning. We had something here at the church, it's happened to other churches, I called a couple other pastors in town, it happened to them too, where somebody got in a list of the phone numbers of all our small group leaders, and they had texted them as me, asking for gift cards to help you know, someone in the church. And most people didn't fall for it, but one person did, uh, to the tune of over $1,000. And that was you know, this deception that took someone's compassion and kindness and used it against them. So just a tip, if you get a text from me asking for gift cards, that is not me. Uh, that is someone being awful and terrible and using the trust that I have with you uh, against us. And like I said, I called a couple other pastors in town and they've, some of them have had this happen too. And so understand that part of the tactics of the enemy, the schemes of the devil are deception. He wants us to fall for, he wants us to believe lies and he will damage us and hurt us in this. And it can be lies in all kinds of different areas. One to keep in mind are religions that are false. And I know this isn't very politically correct to say this, but it is correct. For instance, the Mormon church. It is based on uh, the false prophet Joseph Smith and information that he got, he says, from an angel named Moroni. Well, it's not true. It doesn't line up with the Bible. It does not point you to the true scripture. Um, it doesn't point you to Jesus of the scripture. And so it is a false system. They're nice people. They emphasize family. I'm not knocking them in that. But understand the theology is atrocious. The theology, they have been deceived um, Islam, this massive, fast-growing religion around the world. It's based on the false prophet Muhammad and his teaching. And so we see again and again that Satan will mislead people by twisting truth, by offering deception. Now, what we need to see is that often this can happen at an individual level particularly like we have the children in here today and the teenagers, it can happen particularly when you're tender and young. And let's say you're in a difficult situation. Maybe you're in a situation where, you know, maybe, or maybe you adults, you grew up in a situation where dad was violent. And so imagine being a little girl in a home with a violent father. Now what starts to be the truth as viewed by the child. And it's not true, but this little girl, in her innocence, begins to believe no man can be trusted. Now that's a lie. That's not true. 
But if she grabs that and that becomes the truth to her, that will affect any future marriage she attempts to have. It will affect her relationships at work. It will affect her relationships at church. Uh, It will affect her relationships everywhere. And so we see that sometimes Satan will tailor some deceptive statement and we grab hold of it. Maybe you grew up in a situation and you felt isolated for whatever reason. Maybe it was at school. Maybe the parents were super busy, but you feel like I am alone. I am not loved. If you grab hold of that, if you believe that at the core of your being, I am not loved, that will radically and completely affect your life. That is a falsehood. We have a God who loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so you could be in relationship with him. That's the truth. And you have to challenge deceptions that are sown into our hearts, particularly when we're vulnerable, particularly when we're traumatized, particularly when we're wounded. And so deception is one of the ways, one of the schemes of the devil that can cause great damage in our lives. Another way that he works is division. So he, defend, he tempts us to believe lies. Um, division, he tempts us to break or even end our relationships, to go it alone, to be isolated. We are not made to be isolated. We are made to live in connection with other people. In the book of Job, Satan manages to create a divide between Job and his wife. Because of the severe trauma of losing their children, because of the great loss of losing their wealth, because of all these hit upon hit, his wife turns against him and says, Job, just curse God and die. Satan divides them. He is very good at this. You see, the church around the world in many ways is divided. You see uh, family, which is the bedrock, the foundation of society, is divided. You look at the divorce rates. Many of you have experienced divorce. Many of you have had parents that were divorced. And you have experienced gut-wrenching, painful, painful times because Satan was able to divide what should have been that bedrock and it's excruciating now sometimes and we kind of you know to lighten up a little bit division can be a little humorous sometimes I think of a friend of mine this week and he posted a picture he's, he's married okay he posted a picture of a woman asleep and the caption said I don't always wake up grumpy sometimes I let her sleep in I thought, stupid, stupid man. <laughs> Another person I know, this is a female, uh, she's married as well, and she posted on Facebook, nobody told me when you get a husband, the ears are sold separately. I thought that was funny too. So sometimes we kind of laugh at the division, but there is real division. It is one of Satan's tactics. In the garden, we see instantly there's a division between God and man because God is holy and man is now sinful. We see there's a division between the man and his wife. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The man said, so he gets challenged after they disobey God, and he says, the woman you put here with me. So notice he blames his wife. So there's a division there. And he blames God. Who you put here with me, 
She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. It's not my fault. It's the woman's fault, and you put her here. And so notice the division that's happening there. Notice that there is incredible division in the first family. Within one generation, we have a brother, Cain, kills Abel. Talk about division. That is a massive level. We see in the Old Testament, King David is divided from his son Absalom, who led a rebellion against him because he was proud, because he wanted power, because he wanted wealth, and so he led a rebellion against his own father. Look at the political divisions that occur in our country today. I've never quite seen anything like it in my lifetime. So division is another way that Satan schemes and Satan works. Another tactic is discouragement. So he tempts us to quit. I've been on a church planting board of an organization for years, and the number one way we lose churches is that the planter quits. It's usually a husband and wife team, and when you dig into it, the wife quits first, and then a couple months later, the husband quits. They're discouraged They're trying to do something for the kingdom. They're trying to do some good. They're trying to share the gospel with people. But it's hard. It's difficult. And they get discouraged and they quit. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. You see Sarah and Abraham. And they are promised a miracle child in their old age. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. It looks like 25 years they wait. And at some point in that stretch, Sarah gets discouraged. And so she says to Abraham, how about you have a child with my servant girl? And so they agree that's the plan. It's disobedience. They do it. And it creates this absolute division, this absolute mess. Uh, You have basically the ancestor of the Arab nations. That's the, of the, of the handmaiden. And then you now have um, their miracle child, who is, you know, the child that leads to the Jewish nation. And to this day, we are still seeing that division. We've seen these horrific things happen in Israel lately. And that came out of discouragement. Sarah and Abraham got tired of waiting. God didn't act quick enough. We definitely see Satan discourages Job He's hanging on to his faith, but he is discouraged. At one point he says, you know, I wish I'd never been born. He's just wrestling with that. We see the prophet Jeremiah writing an entire book called Lamentations. He is discouraged. In Galatians chapter 6, 9, we are reminded by Paul, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We must people... Be people who do not give in to the discouragement that our enemy throws at us. Another tactic, the final one I'll mention, is fear. And he tempts us to refuse to move forward in faith. He tempts us not to trust God. The classic classic example is when the people of God are delivered from slavery in Egypt They get to the edge of the promised land. They send in 12 spies to check out the land. And 10 of the spies come back and go, boy, the cities are fortified. The people are huge. They're strong. They're powerful. We can't do this. And only two, Joshua and Caleb, say, we can do this. The Lord is with us. And the people, because of fear, even though they saw the plagues, 
Even though they saw the plagues, even though they experienced the manna in the wilderness, they refused to go in. And that generation missed the promised land. That generation missed what God wanted to do for them. Fear often cuts off flourishing in our lives. What have you missed out on in your life because you were afraid? Because you haven't walked by faith? You know, the teens are in here today. You know, stop and think about it. It's a thing for you know, a teenage boy to ask out a young lady on a date. And, you know, you don't have to do it. But if this is the young lady that could be an amazing wife, you could miss out on that entire life because of fear. We want to be people who understand what the enemy throws at us. I love a story found in 2 Kings chapter 6. In this story, Aram was at war with Israel. And so the king of Aram, uh, he's trying to fight against Israel, God's people, the Jewish nation. And every time he makes a move, the prophet Elisha, who's in Israel, tells the king what's going to happen. And so the Jews are able to counteract everything that the king of Aram tries to do. So the king of Arab gets really frustrated about this, and he says, I'm going to take out, I'm going to assassinate this prophet Elisha. So he sends the army, surrounds the town of Dothan, which is where Elisha and his servant are staying. They get up in the morning, and the servant is horrified. He looks out, and he sees this massive army surrounding the town that they're in, and he knows they've come to assassinate his master, and he figures he's going down too. He's terrified. But I love calm, faith-filled Elisha. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord. Well, first he says to the servant, he says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's like, what? There's the two of us. And there's a few people in this town, but this army's massive. And he prays, Elisha prays, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And God, God pulls back the curtain. And he's able to see this massive angelic army in between them and this army that has come to kill them. And then Elisha. He says, strike them with blindness. So this enemy army, they all go blind, and Elisha goes out and takes them and delivers them as prisoners of war to his own king. Now, he does tell his king, show them mercy, and they do let them go. But it's an incredible event where you see fear is what the enemy tried to do. But faith, trust, enabled them to rise above it. Now, the primary weapons, at least outwardly, at least offensively in this particular passage, are truth and prayer. So that's where I want to wade in. So we've looked at some of the tactics of Satan, and those give you some basic tactics that he uses, some schemes against us. The primary methods, uh, weapons that we have are truth and prayer. Well, truth, it's kind of twofold. First is the person of truth, Jesus Christ himself. Now, theologians debate this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Some theologians would tell you this is the word of God, which that could be, but I think that comes later. Uh, 
This, I believe, is the person of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the reason I say this is because the belt on the Roman soldier uniform, which is what the Apostle Paul is using as a model here, the belt is what holds the whole uniform together. And Christ, the person of Christ, is what holds it all together for us. He, our faith is in him. Our faith is not just in a list of propositions. It's not just in a bunch of abstract truth. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ who lived sinlessly, born of a virgin, offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins and walked out of his own grave and will return someday in complete and total victory. That's where our trust is, is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's the person of truth, and then we also see the book of truth, the scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so this is the Bible. This is God's truth on a page in black and white. And we, I think, tend to undervalue this We face temptation, and one of the most powerful things we can do is imitate Jesus. When Jesus faced temptation head-to-head with the devil in the wilderness, every time when he responds, he begins with, it is written. I mean, if anybody didn't need to quote scripture, it was Jesus, the living word of God. But what does he do? What does he lean on? He leads on the word of God. This It seems simple, but it's powerful and profound. This is our sword. This is our weapon, the word of God. It's what helps us to cut through deception and to see the truth. I was reading about a little girl, Barbara, who's five years old, and she had disobeyed her mom. And her mom sat down, and they were having a conversation about this. And Barbara says to her mom, "Uh, why do we do bad things? Why do we do wrong things, mom? And mom says, she goes, well, sometimes we just want to do wrong things, and we shouldn't give in to that. She said, sometimes the devil tells us to do something wrong, and we listen to him. And we need to listen to God instead. And the little girl said this, you know, she's crying because she knows she's going to be punished. And she said, but God doesn't talk loud enough. I'm telling you, every time you open the scripture, God talks to you. It's his word in black and white. His truth to help us get through life. Now, I find different principles in scripture comforting at different times i've mentioned job multiple times and job you see at the beginning of job this where the curtain comes back satan goes to god and and says hey i want to attack job and god says okay and they have this this contest so to speak and while i don't appreciate how much god the father lets him attack job like uh, that's one of my questions like Really? That's a lot. But in that story, I find something comforting. This fallen, powerful angel. This angel that is so eloquent that when he rebelled against God the Father in heaven, a third of the angels followed him. 
This powerful angel in full rebellion against God still has to go ask permission before he can attack Job. I find that comforting. The sovereignty of God over the power of Satan. And so the word is our sword. The word helps us. The word helps us cut through falsehoods that we believe. I mentioned some things that somebody might grab hold of as a, as a child of false belief, like I'm not loved or, you know, the word can get us through some of these things because the word teaches us that we are deeply and passionately loved by God. One of the greatest truths, I think the heart of truth is the gospel message about who Jesus is, what he did for us, and part of the truth, the sword of truth, is declaring the gospel. If our kingdom, if his kingdom that we're a part of is going to advance, we declare the gospel, we share the gospel, the good news with other people, that through the cross and resurrection of Christ, we can be saved. And that allows us to move forward. Sometimes, I, I don't know if you have to do this, but sometimes you have to remind yourself and preach the gospel to yourself. Maybe you mess up big and you have stepped into that addiction again and you have to retell yourself the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for that, that there is forgiveness for that, whatever it is. And so the sword of truth, it can be used against lies the enemy tells others. It can be in that kind of worldview battle that we're in. It can also be used with ourselves when we believe and buy into a deception. And then we turn, um, we take the gospel, and that's what helps us to move forward. In Ephesians 6, 19 and 20 of our text, it says, this is Paul writing, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And he's like, hey, this great truth, the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the heart of my message. Not some political agenda, not even a list of family values, but the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is how the kingdom advances, is sharing the gospel with other people. Who in your life can you share this message of good news with? So, the two offensive weapons, one is the truth, and the second is prayer. Corey Strzok some, Strzok, some of you may know her, remember her. She attended this church. She's now a missionary in the Czech Republic with her husband and family. And on Facebook the other day, she shared the prayer of one of her daughters uh, right before a meal. You know, the little girl sat down to eat this meal that Corey had made, and the little girl was disappointed in the meal, okay? So here was the prayer. God, thank you for, and she looks at the food and went, or bless this food and please take our old tongues and give us new tongues that love everything mama cooks and help us know what is poison and what is not poison. <laughs> I love that prayer. But what's she doing? She's asking for an attitude adjustment. <laughs> 
Like I'm looking at what mom made me and I don't like it. I'm not walking in gratitude. I'm not being kind to my mother, thanking her for cooking dinner. And so we have prayer as this powerful weapon available to us where it's not us against the kingdom of evil, it's God against the kingdom of evil. We are just partners. We are just cooperating with him. It's like a sailboat. The power is not in a, in a motor. Um, it is us trimming the sails and the powers in the wind, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we move forward. We're propelled forward by the power of the Spirit because we pray. We have to pray for awareness. We face a vicious enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's not a great image. It's a scary image. If we're on our own, we would be in deep trouble, but we're not on our own. And prayer is that lifeline to God. I love what it says in 1 Peter, the apostle, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. I love that. His ears are attentive to their prayers. If you or I tried to call the president in the United States, if we tried to call some CEO of some big Fortune 500 company, we would not get to talk to him or her. We would talk to some person who's not that person, who doesn't have that authority, but any moment, from the smallest child to the oldest senior citizen, at any moment, we can talk to God. We have this incredible privilege of prayer. This is one of our greatest weapons to invite God into the battle. Prayer is the battle. I never have noticed in the scriptures the apostles asking Jesus, hey, can you like do miracles 101 with us? Could you walk us through that? But I do see them in the scriptures saying, Lord, teach us to pray. They understood where the power was, where the lifeline was. They got it. Notice how strongly prayer is emphasized in this passage. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I think we're strong in the Lord by truth, but also by prayer. Jump down to verse 18 through 20. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers. Requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Once again, repetition points to importance. And we saw the word prayer over and over again. This is one of our greatest weapons. This is how we are strong in the Lord. We are to pray in faith. We are to pray persistently. We are to pray in line with God's will, so coupled with his truth. truth. We are to pray in agreement with other believers. We are to pray with authority. We are not beggars. We are his sons and his daughters. I appreciated a movie, you may have seen it, called The War Room. It was about prayer. It was put together by Stephen and Alex Kendrick. 
And they talk about growing up with a Christian father. And their Christian father helped, he felt called to help with a, a school, start this Christian school. And they said they saw all these answers to prayer. But one of their favorite stories was the school was a few years old and they needed this uh, modular unit for the school and they needed $7,000 for the project. And so they were praying for the $7,000 project. And a couple stops in to their father's office and they said to him, does your school need anything? What's, what's going on? And he explained the project and he said, and the price tag is $7,000. And that couple, their jaws dropped, and they pulled out of, I think, the lady's purse a check that was already written to the school for $7,000. They said, as we prayed, this is what we felt we should bring, and it was to the penny, the need. And I love that. We serve an all-powerful, all-knowing God. We are to pray while we're fasting. We're to pray from an obedient life. We are to pray the word of God. You don't know what to pray? Just open up your Bible and start praying some of the promises of God. In Exodus chapter 17, we're given this visual aid where Moses is watching a battle. So the Jews are being led by Joshua and they're in battle with the Amalekites and they're down there and they're fighting and Moses is raising his hands. He's praying over them and they are winning as long as his hands are up and he's praying, he's focused. But when he gets tired and drops his hands, when he loses his focus, they start to lose the battle. So they get people to prop him up, you know, as he prays. And we see that prayer is where the battle is won and lost. It's not in our talent, but it's in our connection. It's in our connection with the all-powerful creator, the maker of heaven and earth. I love Matthew chapter 8. There's there's an interaction with a centurion and Jesus. The centurion comes and asks Jesus to heal a servant. Jesus says, well, yeah, I'll go with you to your place. And the centurion says, you don't have to go. Just say the word. Just say the word. And the scripture says, Jesus was amazed at his faith. And he said, I'm a man under authority. I'm a man with authority. I say to this soldier, go. He goes, goes, you say the word, it'll happen. I love that. Pray with authority. Don't you want to have a faith that amazes Jesus? That's possible. We have an example of it. It's amazing to me that it's a Roman centurion, but that's who he says. He's amazed. You're a son and daughter of God if you're in Christ. Pray with authority. It has been said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. And that's what we're called to. Bottom line is this. Yes, we are living in between the decisive battle of the cross and the resurrection and the final battle, the return of Christ. But understand that the outcome is certain. And the bottom line, the big idea is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And we get to walk in that. We fight not for victory. We fight from victory. But we have an enemy. And don't believe we are walking in peacetime. 
We are not. That is a critical error. We are fighting a spiritual battle. And the battle is fought with the word of God, the truth, and with prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you today. We thank you that you do not leave us alone in this. We thank you that despite the power of our opponent, that we will be victorious because you are victorious. We will be overcomers because you are all-powerful. Lord, we acknowledge your sovereignty. Lord, I pray for each person here. I don't know what battle they're in. I don't know what specifically they're facing. But Lord, I pray they will grab these weapons and wield them with the authority of being your child. Lord, this is our prayer in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.